in terms of our school system, like I really think these are the kind of things like, why are we not teaching this to people? And us as real estate coaches, like why are we not making sure that everyone who comes through our program knows some of that stuff? Hey, it's JP. Hi, it's Excel. And you're listening to Terry Shower on the Real Estate Investors Club podcast. Hello, and welcome to this week's episode of the Real Estate Investors Club podcast. I'm here with Stephanie, and we're going to do something a little bit different this week. Um, actually, Stephanie's going to be interviewing me. And uh, Stephanie, why don't you tell us how this came about? Hi, good morning. Thanks for having me. Um, so I got this idea because since I started watching your show, I always heard little um, snippets about your journey and your story, but it was always in relation to what the guest was saying. So today I really wanted to just focus on your story and how you got to where you are. And yeah, that's that's how I got up. How, that's how I came up with this idea. <laughs> and I think we should also just shout out to Stephanie because she you know, is new, relatively new to networking. She came to our last event and, um, you know, just came up to me and said, Terry, I want to interview you on your show. And I was like, Stephanie, like, <laughs> good for you, you know, for taking a risk and coming out of your comfort zone. So let's just, you know, start there and, and let's go yeah. on an adventure together. Yeah, thanks. I uh, just a little side note is that when I started listening to your show as well, I set it as a goal for myself as when I'm successful enough, I'm going to be on Terry's show. That's when I know I'm going to be that to that level. And then now I feel like I just skipped the line. <laughs> um okay so let's get started um do you want to start off by just telling us why real estate how did you get started and is this a journey that you had set for yourself or you just landed here coincidentally yeah so it was actually completely coincidence um to land in it in the first place so you know i i moved out of my parents house when i was 19 i went to go live in toronto to study and um, there was no space in student housing at the time. So I found a room in this like, you know, big, crazy student run mansion. Like it was actually 15 college kids living together. And it was exactly what it sounds like. It was a complete disaster. <laughs> Chaotic. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so like the old house manager had actually moved out on the day that I moved in. And when I got there, like I couldn't deal with the mess. So I started out by just like bagging all the garbage um, and like cleaning up and then 24 hours later my housemates were like oh look here's somebody's taking initiative let's vote her house manager okay <laughs> wow um, and so then like basically I spent my studies um, you know managing my undergrad degree managing the house and then I liked that so much that I then moved I moved to Vancouver and was like okay I like this I'm gonna rent a house and set up the same system and really you know decrease my rent so like kind of house packing. Yeah. Um, but also just I enjoyed that kind of community model of living. Right. Um, so then I did that for a couple of years and then moved back to Montreal. And then I went to see dad and said, dad, I've been doing this now for we've been like whatever, five, six years. Wow. Let's buy a property. So come, you know, lend me the down payment, co-sign the mortgage. And I'm going to run it like I've been running these houses. And um, dad was on board. He wasn't on board with Hoshalaga. Uh, which is like, you know, Hoshalaga 20 years ago is not Hoshalaga now. Yeah. And I was a lot younger. I was 26 when we um, put the offer on the on the property. But, you know, we closed on it. I made it work and it worked so well that within another year we were able to refinance and add another property. Okay. And then I kept 
going like that till I had three triplexes um, that I was running basically like a student housing and then ran out of borrowing capacity. And uh, I was still studying. So, you know, I, I did a, a PhD in communications, which has nothing to do with real estate. And then when I got to the end of my studies, I kind of had this fork in the road where I had to ask myself the question, what am I going to do now? Like I was getting more satisfaction out of doing real estate than I was out of what I was studying. And so, you know, after a lot of tearing my hair out, <laughs> I picked the, I don't know if it's the path less traveled by, but it was like my fork in the road. So that's, that's kind of right. how things got started. Okay. Was When you came back to Montreal, was your goal to do more property management or was your goal really to build up this empire so that you could not have to pursue a career in what you were studying and pursue, I guess, a career in real estate? Well, so what happened was I came back to Montreal actually twice because I lived in, in Vancouver. I came back here when I was 26 and that was when I sort of started out as an investor and I got the like the three triplexes. And so at that point, I'd read Rich Dad, Poor Dad, and I, you know, saw that there was, you know, le like leverage to be created and I enjoyed doing, I liked living in that kind of a community. And also I was aware that that somewhere down the line, financially, that was going to pay off, but I was still going to be a prof, you know? Uh, and so like I finished my studies and then when I finished my studies, I must've been, I think I was 30. And then, then it was like, okay, am I going to get an academic job? Um, and I actually, you know, nothing to do with anything, had a, an opportunity to go kickbox in France. And yeah, but I needed a day job. And so then at that point, I was like, okay, I'm going to just, you know, go pursue this part of my dream, which was to, to, to be a kickboxer. And then got a job in like a property management company with the goal of learning how to do that. And then one day setting up my own company. So I did that for three years. And when the second time when I moved back to Montreal from France, that's when I was like, you know, I did my broker's license and that I was like, okay, I'm fully committed. But I but I committed to the real estate path on moving to France. And I specifically sought out a small property management company because I'm like, okay, this is what I'm going to do. This is what I'm going to do. So let someone pay me to get that training because like there's not, you know, at the time there wasn't really property management courses you could do. So I figured I'm going to just go observe a company like that from inside and then, and then clone it. Okay. So you spent a lot of time on the property management side and were, was that allowing you to scale your your real estate as well to buy more properties? You said you would run out of borrowing power. What what happened then? Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, this is what happens to like a lot of a lot of investors really is you start out in the residential world because the multi-res world is it's difficult to get into. You need a fair amount of cap down, but you also need to understand that system and it's just more difficult to learn because fewer people have that knowledge. And so for like basically the first, you know, 10 years of my real estate career, like I owned those three triplexes. It was nine doors um, and I wasn't able to acquire anything else because there was no, you know, I wasn't earning tons of money. And so there was no additional leverage that I could use to acquire additional residential properties. And so because that was kind of blocked, I started a management business because I knew I had a business model to like optimize those properties. And that was that student housing model where I rented by the room. Um, and I grew that portfolio to like, you know, I was managing 50 rooms and that was quite lucrative. Like I could charge a 15% management fee. So that worked for a while until I learned, you know, how to get into more multi-residential stuff. And until I'd had enough of managing 
you know, crazy students. I like, I hit 35 and I was like, okay, I don't really want to party with these people anymore. Move <laughs> on to the next more professional phase. And then, and then that's kind of what happened. Okay. Do you still have those triplexes or have you sold them to purchase bigger properties? So I still have, I have the last one. It's actually currently on the market. And the other ones I traded them basically to buy, you know, more larger multi, multi-res buildings. Okay. And just in our networking, I've found out that you focus a lot on lower income housing. Is that your business model? Like, can you talk to that a little bit? Like, that's sure. Focus on purchasing. Yeah. So, I mean, I started out like, again, sort of accidentally in Hochelaga. Like I, I went to, um, uh, Sujet de Maisonneuve. And so I knew that area when it was like really up and coming. Like it's still a bit patchy today, but 20 years ago, it was like the bikers had just finished like bombing the bar on the corner, you know? So people were like really sketched about getting into that area. And I think it's just, you know, I lived on the bottom floor of my triplex for those 10 years as I was building my business. And so like I just became comfortable in that environment. And it was just, I built my business in that environment and then one thing kind of turned it turned into the into the next and then as the built business started growing and i started investing in different areas i found that my business model just happened to like work in those areas because like my management skills like you know if you're a really good property manager if you have a relationship with a really good property manager you can sort of optimize just by tightening the management and it's a very low overhead way to make money you don't have to, you know, uh, evict a whole bunch of people. You don't have to uh, do cash for keys. You don't have to spend all the money on construction. You do need to know, obviously, a little bit about about maintenance and repairs. But like, I'm by no means, you know, an expert on construction. I'm not a developer, mm-hmm. um, and so my skills are really management skills and to look to target poorly managed buildings. And it just happens that those low income areas, you know, a lot of older landlords have had those you know properties for 10 years and they just haven't really done anything or else they've you know bought them because the multiples look interesting but then they don't have the skills to really manage that you know population that market segment properly so okay interesting and how did you like make a name for yourself in this real estate space did you get into networking or like how how do people know your name at this point? <laughs> That's a funny, it's a funny question. Um, well, I mean, really, uh, I guess what happened in sort of like the, you know, public public sphere uh, is I got involved with the Real Estate Investors Club who okay. host networking and, and they were looking for someone to teach property management. And so that's, you know, they, I, I think... No, actually, you know what? If I rewind, that's actually not what happened. I, I had a connection who was part of a real estate education company in Toronto and initially they were going to hire me to work there and then you know something happened internally and that like didn't work out and I I saw that like my you know values weren't exactly aligned with um, what they were doing Um, you know the price tag on their course was very expensive and I felt like they were really doing a bit more upsell um, than I was comfortable with plus they're more Ontario based so less you know based in, in my home market which is here um, and then yeah, Jean-Philippe and I had a common uh, acquaintance and then, you know, I got in contact with him and they were looking for someone who was teaching. And then, you know, I started that and then COVID happened and we were all stuck at home. And then I was like, okay, you know, we need to have 
a conversation and a way for people to stay informed, us included, because all of a sudden we're stuck in our silos at home. And I felt like all those conversations that I needed to make sound business decisions, all of a sudden I couldn't have them anymore. And I was like, okay, I'm going to have those conversations. And like, why not let the community profit from those? And then it started out as Facebook lives. And then that then over, you know, whenever a six month to a year period turned into a podcast right. because I, I just, I had so much fun. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Enjoying the episode so far? Have you really been listening to the episode or has your monkey mind been taking you off in one direction or another? Our mental habits can be our biggest assets or our biggest liabilities as we pursue certain goals. For me, the biggest performance gains have always come from training my mind. In my book, Mindful Landlord, I talk about how you can train your mind and how you can apply some of these strategies to your journey in the real estate field. The book is available on Amazon and also on its website, mindfullandlord.com. Now I'll stop evangelizing for the power of mental training and let you get back to the show. So have you given up on um, teaching altogether or like what do you focus most of your time on? Um, No. So, I mean, I still uh, in the, you know, the Real Estate Investors Club, like I coach, I have a couple of uh, coaching sessions where I teach like a day. I still teach property management. Um, I'm also one of their their coaches. So you can book coaching hours um, through through the uh, the organization. Um, and then for me, you know, the like whole education thing, the podcast is a big part of that because, you know, either I'm interviewing people or I try to do solo episodes or have like live coaching sessions. Um, that's a kind of a, a way to, you know, get that education in a low cost way out to a larger number of people. And, you know, that was also the point of my book by writing a Mindful Landlord. Like, you know, I... I do think that there's a place for expensive coaching programs uh, for people who want to do like something intensive, but I'm like a big, I'm a big fan of podcasts and books. And like, I'm also a, like, you know, mm-hmm. uh, how can you say autodidact, I'm not sure, self-caught in English. Okay. Um, and for me, like most of the things that I know how to do, I learned through books and now recently through podcasting. And so I think it's just incredible that for 20 bucks, you can have a mind dump of the, you know, most uh, renowned experts on a specific thing. And I think that like there's people don't use that enough. And so I wanted, you know, my resource to be out there with the real estate knowledge, but also the mindfulness ideas, because like, you know, that's been for me, the methodology that I've used really to do what I've done, you know, like it's the real estate knowledge is knowledge that you can acquire by Googling. But the mindfulness methodology is a way to you know face goals and uh optimize performance and you know have a more fulfilled life like i really can't you know overstate the impact that had on me and i I want it i just want those ideas to be out there and i think the real estate community needs that you know and so that it's not just about doors deals and dollars right for sure it ties in with your um your martial arts background the mindfulness of all of that because i know that's part of it (laughs) so what's your long-term game like are you planning on selling or holding your properties like what what are you up to are you looking at expanding your portfolio so I mean I I like to I like to tell this story you know like I attained financial independence with night with my nine doors uh you know 10 years ago and so that was the point at which my passive income was enough to cover my expenses. And so the growth that I've done since then has been like really, how can I say, 
like a plus, you know. So I don't, I'm not in this like crazy growth phase. I don't feel like I need to, you know, double my portfolio. I enjoy working with the partners that I have. And so when we have the opportunity to do an additional project or I see something interesting, you know, I want to do it, but it's, it needs to fit into, um, you know, my lifestyle plan and the partnership goals that I have. And so I would say at this point, you know, it's obviously there, it's nice to have financial gain at the end of it somewhere, but you know, my, my motivation is to continue doing something I like with people I like working with yeah. in a sort of, you know, slow and steady kind of way um, that, that fulfills our needs, really. Right. Yeah. You're not hustling at this point, like, uh, no. beginner. <laughs> That's nice. That's where we all want to be. Yeah. <laughs> okay, nice. And, okay, so I guess since you are, you've reached that financial freedom, it, when you make your deals, you're not, are you, how much risk do you actually take on? Because working in the low-income space, I'm sure there's some risk, but since you've reached that, like, you've attained that relaxing lifestyle that everyone wants do you go out and seek those bigger deals or so i mean like i would actually say my business model of the investors that i socialize with like i feel like my model is the lowest risk right okay like it's probably i mean maybe there's lower return uh than what some of the other people are doing uh, you know that's that's kind of a universal law in, in financial existence right is that like the higher the risk the higher the return so like no i won't have the same kind of returns as somebody who uh does cash for keys empties a 40 unit building um renovates everything and you know doubles the rents right like that's not my business model my business model will to be bought will to be to buy a building with like you know rents that are worth at market value 1200 they're rented for anywhere between six to eight hundred and then within a two to three year period i'm turning over you know, 30 to 50% of the units with just good management. And then that translates into, you know, a certain, a certain financial gain. But because there's not very much other than the initial down payment, it's not like I need huge amounts of cash to carry out a construction project. And the cash flow is always kind of coming in, right? Like if you empty a building, like you're going to really have to make very solid figures because you're going to be your burn rate of your of your capital. Uh, and you're, you know, you're three months late on a construction project. Like that's going to be a huge burn rate. Whereas yeah. like, I just don't have a burn rate. Like my projects really don't go into the red. I would yeah. think that having lower income tenants in there, sometimes they can't pay rent. So like, how do you deal with those? Because that's still... I guess not vacancy, but you're still not getting your income from so, those particular tenants who just don't pay. Yeah. Well, I mean, so like this is one of the, you know, a kind of a popular, an urban legend in Quebec, right? Like really non-payment is the smallest of the issues here because when someone's three weeks late on their rent, so the 22nd, you open a file at the Regie, three weeks after that, you're going to have a court date and then you're going to get your judgment and they're going to be out. So... Like it, the, all in all, you're never going to be more than, let's say, end to end three months of no income. And usually what happens is because those people are paying lower amounts, when someone like that gets evicted, you're able to readjust to market. And like, yes, you do have to have a three month buffer somehow to cover that hole in your budget, but it's never going to be the whole building. It's always going to be like one, one or two tenants. And the gain of the turnaround time and the gain on that is like really pretty quick. Like I said, you know, three months end to end with two to three weeks to like repaint and, and do whatever minor tune-ups you need to do. Um, 
like the non-payment factor. I mean, obviously, depends where you are in your career because I can, you know, I can tell you when the first time this happened to me, I had one triplex. I was a student. Mm-hmm. I couldn't cover the mortgage payments without the rent. So, you know, that's a different stage in your life. Like that at that right. moment, it was very stressful for me. But uh, at this moment where, you know, you're dealing in bigger buildings, um, if you have one tenant out of eight or 12 or 16 who's not paying, um, you should be able to handle that for two to three months. And uh, there's never 16 tenants who don't pay. It's always like right. one person. And then if you get one a year, that's actually kind of good for you because then you can turn the unit over and, and keep going. So, you know, that versus like people who tell me they do, you know, or flips, right? Like, let's say if you're going to buy like a, a single family home or a duplex and kick the tenants out. So you have no income. Then you have a construction project. Then you have to time the market because if you bought a year ago and you're trying to flip something now, like good luck to you, right? Like you're really doing a market time. Whereas like in, in my business model, as long as the tenants are there, as long as they're paying, yes, every five years I have to worry about what happened to the, to the interest rate, but it's really quite low risk compared to some of the other things that the other strategies people use, I find. Right. Even like the Burr model that takes a certain amount of strategic planning as well. So are you, do you go in and renovate your model, your um, the, your units, or do you just paint in between tenants? Well, I do the minimum that's going to bring me the maximum amount of rent. And okay. this is actually like one of the things that I teach, which is, you know, people kind of make this mistake that they renovate for themselves. And for me, like, especially with, you know, low income tenants in not great areas, like often those are people who are kind of hard on the places that they live in. Um, you don't want to install anything high end. You want to do it, you know, basic, um, the most standard thing possible so that if it breaks, you can just switch it out for the same thing. You know, we, we always install the same tile. We always install the same fixtures. Um, and so like I do the minimum to bring a place clean and wh- like white, clean, basic, and then and that's it. Yeah. And I have like various, there's like various strategies that you can use to kind of cut costs with that. Like, you know, changing the doors of kitchen cabinets instead of ripping out the whole units if they're still good or doing enamel in your bathroom instead of like ripping out a whole tile wall. You can really, you know, have a, have a, a nice white bathroom that's just enameled over as opposed to ripping all the tile out and starting over. So those are, you know, ways to, to cut costs and still have something that's aesthetically up to date. Okay. Oh, interesting. Huh. I learned so much. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, I'm just going to take a little pivot here. I'm going to go back to your story. So if you were to start over or go back, would you fix any mistakes or do anything to modify the path that you took? Yeah, that's a really good question. (laughs) I would buy more buildings. (laughs) Earlier on? Okay. Yeah, earlier on. Because I, you know, I passed, I think at the beginning, you like maybe lack the confidence that you have later on. And so like I passed on deals because... I felt like it was I was biting off too much and I felt like, you know, I couldn't handle it. And I think in retrospect, if I had just bitten it off, especially when I was younger and didn't have, you know, the family responsibilities I have now, I think I would have hustled my way into into things going faster. So I think that's, you know, one thing is that really real estate with time is a very forgiving industry. Like even if you bought a bit high, even if you made some mistakes, on a five to 10 year time horizon, those things are long forgotten. And that's what I tell people, you know, when I'm working with them now is like, look, you're not going to remember the 10K less or the 10K more that you paid for a specific building. Right. In yeah. 10 years from now, you're going to 
think about the you know two or three hundred k you made on appreciation in that time and that 10k is long to be forgotten so okay. i would have bought more buildings i would have you know networked more and i think that was like i used to be really shy um and i have a serious case of imposter syndrome okay. um <laughs> and so you know that really held me back from having those conversations and making those connections that would have allowed me to you know 10x my game much faster and i think once i you know through mindfulness address the shyness and then through um i was i was part of um bni which is a business networking international and they really have like a networking methodology which at some point i'm gonna i'm gonna have you know condense their philosophy into a little course and and do kind of like a micro course on that but you know especially when you start out networking like we have this feeling that it's the high school dance right or like a popularity contest and like i'm not an extrovert like i'm not going to walk into a room and talk to 30 people and it's tough yeah it's tough but you don't even that's not what you have to do but that's actually not how you build a successful business network and there's really like a scientific methodology to doing it and once you apply that it takes the whole popularity contest thing out of it and then i was just able to you know when i do go to those networking events i'm just myself you know, I just, you know, have conversations with people and I'm not in this like putting pressure that I need to get, you know, 15 contacts and I need to like foist myself on on people or whatever. No, it's it's a question of understanding what someone else's business is, understanding how can I, who can I connect them to? How can I help you? And then inevitably in the conversation that turns itself around and then becomes, okay, Terry, like, what are you looking for? What do you need? And then it becomes like a mutually profitable thing where we're like we're both looking out for each other right. um and once you set about like expanding your network with that ethos behind it like oof, then things move you know so much faster and uh right in uh in another podcast i think you said that one thing you should always do is just show up because at one networking event you can't talk to 15 people you might talk to a few three people but get some good quality content from them and then next time you show up again, you'll meet another three people. And it's just about building up that that network over time and not necessarily in one individual meeting. Yeah. Yeah. No, absolutely. And and you know, and the and the, the imposter syndrome, right? Is like I think the truth is, and it's not just in real estate, I think in so many walks of life, like so many of us are walking around there, um, you know, feeling like we're less than or like everyone else in the room knows more than we do. Um, and if you just realize that like pretty much that's how everybody feels. <laughs> and yeah. so you just don't need to like, don't let it stop you. You know, like you can feel uncomfortable in a situation and still be there. You can still show up. And, and you know, like I, I like to say, like a lot of the things that I've succeeded at is it's the showing up medal. You know, I just yeah. showed up for 10 years. That's the easiest part. It doesn't matter. Just show up. And like, you know, eventually, like, you'll be the best girl. You'll be at the top of the podium because everyone else gave up. <laughs> yeah, it's true. I guess. Yeah, maybe it's not the easiest part. But once you're no, there, exactly. once you're it's there. actually the hard. It's actually the hardest part because yeah. it's consistency and it's like daring to show up even when you don't feel good about showing up. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. Um. So I think we're near the end of the session. So I'm going to ask you the question you ask everyone because I'm sure you have an answer to this one. So what is something that we should be talking about that we're not talking about? <laughs> <laughs> in real, I'm assuming you mean in real estate. Yep. 
Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, wow. That's such a, like, that's a, it's a law. It should be a law, but I feel like I should have. Uh, yeah. Have but I, I would expect you to have an answer. Yeah. Um, no, I mean, you know, for me, the, like the mindfulness thing is a big one. And, you know, I feel like so often we get caught up and not just in real estate, and like in many things we get so caught up in, you know, what's the technical right next move that I need to make and analysis paralysis and all of this stuff. But like, you know, ultimately, it's you're going to get the most out of understanding how your mind functions. And that's going to then allow you to align with, um, you know, your personal mission or whatever it is that you want to do. And then understanding your consciousness uh, in, in terms of how it operates, you know, your thoughts, your emotions and, and your presence and how you can sort of keep all of those things in balance. Because, you know, just to give a really simple thing, like, for example, your emotions, right? Like, if you think of your emotions as like a dashboard light, fear serves a purpose. It's telling you, here's something potentially threatening. Maybe you should pay attention to this. But if you become so obsessed that like there's a light on on your dashboard and you totally forget about driving the car, like it's not going to serve you. And so it's to understand that like those emotions, like they serve a purpose, but you don't have to let them run your life. So it's to, you know, understand how that fits into how your mind works and then learn how to process it. And, um, I, you know, in terms of our school system, like I really think these are the kind of things like we, why are we not teaching this to people and us as real estate coaches, like, why are we not making sure that everyone who comes through our program knows some of that stuff? Because you can have all the technical knowledge you want, just like you can have all the dieting knowledge you want. But if you don't have, you know, the, the, the mental presence to apply it every time you have a plate of food in front of you, it's useless. So. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> Thanks for those two cents. <laughs> well, Stephanie, thank you for um, the opportunity to do this because, you know, I, I rarely get to have this kind of conversation on my own show. And I think, like you said, it's interesting for me. Um, hopefully it's interesting and valuable for the audience. And, and you know, I want to salute you again for taking the initiative to uh, call me out. <laughs> and make letting us get to know you. <laughs> and to you know your story. Very interesting. We can go. All right. Forever. <laughs> Thank you, Stephanie. And uh, so if you enjoyed this show, obviously like it, share it, pass it on to someone who you think uh, could be interested. And, um, you know, if you, if you can take from this, uh, be like, you know, be like Stephanie. She said to herself, I want to be on this show when I'm successful <laughs> enough. And today's the day. <laughs> yeah. Maybe I'll be back once I have uh, 100 doors. <laughs> Before then. Okay, thank you. Thank you so much. Have a good day. Thanks for listening to the Real Estate Investors Club podcast. We hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did, remember to give us a rating, leave a comment, subscribe, and share. You can find Terry at terryshower.com. Her book, Mindful Landlord, is available on Amazon. You can also follow her on Facebook, LinkedIn, and Instagram. JP is the president of the Real Estate Investors Club. You can learn more about the club's networking and educational activities on Facebook by searching for Real Estate Investors Club. Look to the show notes to find information on our guests and links to material mentioned in the episode.